and welcome to Through the Pinard, your conversational podcast talking to midwives around the world about the research they are doing to improve midwifery practice. This research can range from small quality improvement programs and projects to those starting partway through or just finishing their postgraduate studies and to those that have been there, done that and got the t-shirt. So settle back and enjoy the conversation. And remember, you can continue the conversation on Twitter after you finish listening. Thank you so much for joining me today. As per usual, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yes, my name is um, Dr. Sean Walker. I am a midwife and researcher based in the UK. Currently work in London at King's College London. And I'm um, funded by the National Institute for health research to do an advanced fellowship looking at feasibility of another term breach trial. And with looking at your research, breach is your thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So why? How did you get into that? Um, well, in the UK, um, at the time when I qualified to be a midwife, there were very few opportunities to actually do any caseloading. And I liked caseloading. And so I went independent purely because I like to look after women before, during and after pregnancy. Um, But it turns out that people only pay for something they can't get for free on the NHS when the NHS isn't providing a very good service. And um, there, there was a lot of demand for support for breech birth. And I felt that it wasn't appropriate for me to be doing that as a home birth midwife. So I worked with the um, hospital where I had qualified, where I continued working on the bank to develop a breech service within the NHS. But it very quickly became clear to me that this was, um, this was a bigger problem than one midwife working in a little corner of Norfolk, England could um, could do anything about from one little corner. So I decided to do research about improving the safety of breech birth so that it could have a wider impact and um, influence on collective practice. So was that for that research part of formal studies, postgraduate studies, or from outside research? Um, well, I've always been research-oriented in that I've been always inclined to use research to inform my counselling and felt very comfortable looking at the evidence base and discussing that with women. But no, um, I decided to do formal research. This was in 2012, so it would have been two years after I qualified. I started to work on my PhD, um, and I just felt that if mid- midwifery knowledge and insight was going to influence breech birth practice, there needed to be rigorous research, and I wanted to do that in a systematic way. So, tell me about your PhD and what you did in that initial project, then. Okay, so um, as I explained, I research how to improve the safety of vaginal breech birth and my PhD studies focused on what it means to have competence, proficiency and expertise in vaginal breech birth. So if a woman is coming to you and saying, I'd like you to support me to have a breech birth, how do you really talk to her about what your experience level is? How much is enough? We were in a very uncomfortable situation where um, a midwife might say, yes, I'm experienced in breech birth and happy to support you. And it turns out that she's only been to four breech births. Well, comparatively to her colleagues, she's the most experienced. But 
but does that give a false sense of reassurance to the woman about what experience is available to her? And I wanted to find a solution to that problem that we could protect ourselves by having honest um, conversations with women so that they could make informed decisions, um, being realistic about the what we could bring, but also not in a way that was prescriptive, that didn't allow it to happen. We still want to enable people to make the decisions that are right for them, but with all of the information available. So in my PhD, I used Delphi consensus methods, um, where I had a panel of 13 experienced obstetricians with experience ranging from 20 to over 400 breech births and the same for midwives, um, 13 midwives with a similar level of experience and then two service user reps. So we use Delphi consensus methods to develop like how many should someone have attended to be considered competent to practice autonomously um, and things like that. But I also used grounded theory methods, um, which are really good for understanding how things happen. And I wanted to know specifically how people who were developing competence, and so this I looked at a range from 30 to 20, um, a more modest amount of experience, um, to see how, how does someone get breach experience in hmm. um you know, post-term breach trial maternity care where it's very few and far between and the ad the climate is very risk averse and breach averse. Um, how does that happen? And so uh, by listening to people's stories, then I could really um, understand more about um, what might be helpful if we wanted to reinstate breach services. And I found grounded theory, especially a really magical methodology to use um, because, because of the way it enables you to understand how. And once you begin to see the patterns, you start to see them again just in everyday conversations that you're having uh, with people about their own lives and the way they're approaching breach practice. So, I mean, when you kind of think about breach practice, you think of it as a dying art, really, with a lot of the, especially within the hospitals and especially within that risk-adverse environment that we're living now. So did you find that kind of it was more acceptable in, or people got more experience in certain models of care or certain areas or was it kind of just dependent on the luck? Well, it's interesting because a lot of people see breach as a dying art I actually kind of see it as a dead one. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think that I think that that death, I think that 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 it was slowly dying by the end of the 20th century and the Tunbridge trial was kind of the nail in the coffin for a certain type of practice. But the reason I found that exciting is because once you've kind of eradicated it, which it largely is, there's so many obstetricians and midwives qualifying who have never even seen a breech birth. Mm. So you can't speak of them losing skills that they never actually had a chance to sure. gain. Um, so then you start with a blank slate. So it became possible then to say, well, let's look at how people who've been working outside the system and haven't been constrained by um, what one of my participants called a cookie cutter model of breech birth. Um, what are they doing? And it was interesting because some of my participants, for example, came from Brazil, where um, at the time, vaginal breech births were rare, let alone breech births. So 
there were professors of obstetrics who were experts in breach water birth because they had just completely wiped the slate clean and wow. they just decided to reinvent breach birth according to more fundamental rules of physiology and learning from people who were maybe considered outsiders um, of the system, but they kind of remade the rules. And so that's what I'm trying to bring, that kind of fresh approach to what is essentially largely a blank slate. Now, it's not completely, is it, because we have our mandatory training and it's still following that cookie cutter model largely. And there's some people pushing back against that to bring in more current research. But but. I think people are actually really open because especially the younger generations of obstetricians and midwives, they haven't received any really good training that they would have to undo. <laughs> they just haven't received anything at all. Um, and it's, it's especially shocking to me when obstetricians tell me it's the first time they've had any thorough training uh, in breech birth at all, yet they're expected to be the senior professional, especially when they get to senior registrar level, it's not surprising they're running to theatre when there's a breach breath, isn't it? Because they haven't had good mentorship. It's not always the case. And there's some really good mentors out there. And yes, there are some older um, obstetricians who developed skills in different settings or um, prior to the term breach trial. But in general, um, it, it has largely been a an area that is really ripe for someone doing something because no one's been doing anything for a long time. And I think within, especially within undergraduate research or undergraduate education, it's like maybe one session on brief mm. birth in simulation. And within yeah. a lot of the prompt activities that they may or may not include a breach birth as part of the kind of like scenarios when they get everyone together to try and work out what it yeah. is. And I, think, I think I've seen more on TV and in TV programs yeah. and, and call the midwife and th shows like that about breech births, yeah. which has been really interesting. And that's people's introduction. And you look at the differences between kind of like the TV shows that they see. And it's like call the midwife was obviously back in the sixties, but then you see the modern, oh, they breached straight to theater. And it's kind yeah. of that kind of juxtaposing of kind of opposite reactions and yeah. looking at what's happened in between. So you did your PhD in 2012 and I was just kind of like looking at some of the research that you've done far more recently and has published in the last year. So what changes have you seen that you have been happy to see and what changes or static have you still been frustrated about over kind of like the last 10 years? So um, one of the change, well, one of the changes that I have seen, especially now with the publication of the algorithm, which is one of those recent publications from the last year, that is part of a, an article called Practical Insight into Upright Breach Birth from Birth Videos, a Structured Analysis. So one of the things that are changing it, and it's interesting that you just mentioned that you've seen more on TV, because one of the kind of cultural changes that has made breach ripe for change at the moment is the um, use of social media and our interconnectedness through technology because it is actually possible for you to sit down and do for example our online course and see 30 breach births yeah. which is so, many more than many midwives and obstetricians had ever been able to see before in their careers okay so 
And there is something important. And while there's no substitute for the real thing, you need real hands-on experience and to the awareness that you have from being in a room when real-time decisions are being made. But videos can replace a lot of pattern recognition that one develops through sheer repetition and going to birth. So you begin to know what a normal breech birth looks like and that it can happen and things like that. And also women know because they're shared over social media. So yesterday I was just talking to an obstetrician based in Vermont who is supporting the first planned breech birth that has occurred in their hospital for maybe 10 years. And it's yeah, and he's done unplanned breech births because he was first based in the UK and he had some experience, but this is the first. And it's just because the woman refused a cesarean section. And that's because they now know that they can because more and more people are sharing their stories. So there's this pushback. And I think that that the use of videos has been so exciting and it's been great to use it in research. And one of the products of that is that... Um, when we did this research with the videos where we were very nerdy about looking at the minutiae of little things that happened and the time between the buttocks and the umbilicus and this arm and that arm, um, that actually the time to event interval, it's called, um, between the birth of the pelvis and the birth of the head in 42 videos with good outcomes, over 75% of them occurred within three minutes of the birth of the pelvis. And the average time from the umbilicus to the head was only 39 seconds. And that really challenges the typical idea behind hands off the breach practice. So this phrase has been widely used um, with very little guidance about how long it's safe to be hands off. And as a result, it's actually done unintended harm because if you only have a 20-minute session on breach, which is what a lot of people have, and the main message is hands off the breach, hands off the breach, it is so sad how many risk reviews I've done where somebody in the room has encouraged somebody who knows I need to help to stop and to remain hands off the breach. And, and I think that's the kind of thing where it's a catchy phrase, it's used by many top-level training organizations um, with really no evaluation of how it was being used in practice. And now that we're beginning to do some evaluations, we can see that maybe um, it's not what is should be the primary message about breach birth. So, I mean, from my understanding and from some of the reading that I've done is that historically that hands-off has been because of the, the concern or the fear of triggering a potential aspiration of and and well there's all sorts of reasons yeah yeah so one of them is not pooling because people are worried that if somebody puts their hands on they might pull Um, and when you pull you do create risks because you can by pulling a baby out with traction rather than rotation you can actually trap an arm or extend a head so it can cause problems if you put your hands on in the wrong way Um, and so aspiration is one worry another one that as far as I can see has no evidence basis but has frightened people off from doing for example even vaginal examinations is that if you touch the baby you'll trigger a moro reflex the baby will fling its arms up and you'll suddenly have entrapped arms now again 
that might seem like a nice, neat little theory, but when you actually test those theories in practice, and I haven't formally tested that one, but I know in my own practice, I've definitely had babies with caught arms that have had zero vaginal examinations and zero touching whatsoever. And in fact, they occur most often with multips because the babies are flying so quickly through the pelvis and they don't have time to do the rotations. So, but this is what I mean is that I, midwifery and obstetrics were brilliant at coming up with these theories that probably make sense. We're less brilliant at testing them in a really rigorous manner. And every time you kind of come up with a prescription of what you should do and how you should do it, there is the risk that it will improve outcomes. And there's also the risks that it won't. And I'm, you know, these are things that I'm pretty sure have actually contributed to adverse outcomes with breach, a reluctance to intervene when help is needed and very little guidance about how to determine when that is. Do you see a relationship with the education, increased education of, of women in social media in particular, and those wanting to increasingly birth outside of the system? because they're not getting the options that they want, especially if maybe their baby is breached. I mean, is there a higher incidence of women who are, not necessarily in all countries, but in some countries going outside the system because they're being kind of feel like they're being forced to go caesarean? Yes. Um, there's both outside the system birth and um, kind of underground railroad system yeah. birth you know where um even within the system um where somebody who wants a vaginal breech birth will either look outside the system for help from an independent midwife and that's how i became alerted to the issues um and if they don't feel that it's safe in the hospital and this is a complicated thing because Sometimes it's women not feeling that it's safe in hospital, but sometimes it can be social media messages as well who are that are saying, make sure you get permission to birth in the birth center because the obstetricians won't leave you alone and they'll ruin your birth. And, and this is a message that it's very hard sometimes to undo. So like I always say to women, because I have been even though I have had four home births myself and I started out as an independent midwife doing home births, I believe we need to carve out a place for physiological vaginal breech birth in a hospital setting with the multidisciplinary team. So I always try to explain to women that if we are on the obstetric unit, my obstetric colleagues are more reassured that if we do need them, they're not going to have to go running down to the two floors below with their forceps you know, I don't think they're going to need to use their forceps, but should, but that's what their worry is. And they're going to be coming and checking on us more the further we are away. Um, but also when I talk about the kind of underground railroad, that's just a, a metaphor that is very meaningful to me because I'm actually American. Um, this system of um, kind of shepherding people from one place to another in in a kind of hush hush way so a lot of times um if a woman is able to achieve a vaginal breech birth in the system it's because she's had a meeting with a consultant midwife who's worked with a supportive obstetrician they might circulate it to the team or that consultant midwife might be on call and it might be very hush hush there might be a small group of people on call um, and therefore it is achieved within the system which which then ends up in this very strange result that 
it's then circulated on um, social media. Oh, this hospital supports breech birth yeah. when it very much doesn't. It's just been one woman who has been able to advocate. And what worries me about that is, again, the inequity. So um, what I have observed when I've been able to, and others have been in clinics where there is a clear pathway where people are able to access support, the demographic of who chooses vaginal breech birth changes. So it's just like home birth, which might seem like a nice white middle-class choice when it's actually a little bit difficult because those are the women who are able to engage a doula, engage an independent midwife, um, who have doctor friends who tell them how to, to go and talk to and things like that. Whereas when the women who actually have a lot more social reasons in their lives to avoid a cesarean section are the women least likely to be able to mobilize the resources and the research to advocate for themselves. So when you actually set up a pathway, the service automatically becomes more equitable because um, every woman is able to make the decision that's right for her. So that's what... Um, I'm really interested in doing is setting up those pathways within a hospital setting um, where it isn't something that is a service people need to go outside of the system for. It isn't something that only um, privileged women can access. It's something that can be um, accessed by everyone if it's right for them. So what needs to then be done to expanding that? So if you're looking at changing current mindsets, you're looking at changing that fear of what happens if it happens on my shift what else needs to be done because it's, it's a multifaceted change that needs to yeah. occur from undergraduate postgraduate to professional development so how do you see this rolling out over say the next decade well one of the things that i learned a long time ago is that breach is a um long-term commitment it's not something you're going to change overnight you have to have resilience and sometimes I just need to put it aside and ignore it and not have anything to do it for a while because you just get tired of beating your head against the wall mm -hmm. but then some time passes and I noticed that actually we are getting places so for example yesterday I was invited to speak on the RCOG's labor ward management course about vaginal breach oh, now I have 20 minutes on that course, so I'm unlikely to change the world, but it's going to be a drip drip effect, isn't it? It's going to be an exposure. It's going to be a, um, a kind of stamp of approval of this isn't some um, hippie home birth midwife thing, this upright breech birth. It, this is something that we all need to be aware of because women are asking for it. Um, it's, it's in our national guideline. It's a possibility. So let's just all have an open conversation about it. So some of it is those conversations. Um, the other thing that I think is at the root of some of the success that I have had working in this area of research is that I seem to be able to speak in a way that both midwives and obstetricians can hear. And that is totally about the research. Um, obstetricians want to see what the numbers are because they have their emotive feelings about what if this is the head entrapment that I'm now responsible for because they're the ones who are going to have to deal with the really difficult cases, aren't they? So uh, the emotive things um, is if you can get through 
um, with some hardcore numbers about um, how we're going to minimize the possibility of that happening. And, you know, if I can show you that I've been teaching thousands of people over the last five years um, breech birth, and when I ask people to say, what is the average amount of time from umbilicus to head, quite a few people are saying five minutes and seven minutes. Now, if I can um, then explain to you that if you had seven minutes for a shoulder dystocia, you would not be expecting a good outcome. So, is it really unusual that we're having multiple bad outcomes with breach if we think that that's okay? Um, because what happens is then a baby who becomes hypoxic loses tone and they're going to extend their head because of their loss of tone. And that is the one that's going to get stuck at the inlet to the pelvis and is going to need quite a few interventions to assist. Um, so I'm going to explain to obstetricians and they do the, the use of the algorithm does appeal because it's a plan. We can all relate to, we have a clear plan. I actually, it's my practice. And that's another thing is that in addition to research, I continue to do specialist practice in this area. So I continue to counsel, do external cephalic versions, attend breech births. Um, we, we are just at, a, I was just at a breech labor last week and I'm counseling someone later tonight who's planning a breech birth. So it's a regular part of my life. And if I can explain that when that baby comes down onto the perineum and is what we call rumping, so plus three stations, the buttocks are visible between contractions, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start my timer and say, your baby's going to be born within the next seven minutes. And that's going to tell her and everyone in the room that we are now committed, which means although it's going to be scary if we have to commit to an episiotomy or an intervention, we're committed. This is what we need to do to know that we're having a good outcome with this birth. And, and she knows that in advance. So women are often concerned about episiotomies, but again, the research is really helpful. Um, the last evaluation that I did, it's still in um, with a master's student who analyzed the da data, Stella Mattiola, who, Stella Mattiola, who is a master's student at King's. She analyzed the data from um, eight different hospitals in the UK. And we found that births that were attended by people who did our training actually had a 52% rate of intact perineum. Wow. Okay? And nice. I know that. And the average rate for a cephalic birth is 36%. And for the first time, we're seeing something that no one would have thought possible that possibly there are actually advantages to vaginal breech birth that could actually be more advantageous than cephalic birth, not across the board, but in certain instances. And then we see that there's this trade-off that occurs, right? Because a lot of people, they're worried about instrumental delivery and um, perineal outcomes. Well, actually, instrumental delivery now with physiological methods is less than cephalic births and perineal outcomes are better. So the research is, and it becomes really good to um, talk to people about these um, outcomes because many women instinctively feel, oh, I'd like to attempt to breach birth, but the message they're getting from media is either you need to do that at home to be able to achieve it, or that's a crazy idea. Why would you ever put your baby at risk? And I want a more middle of the road Really, in 2021, 
every option you choose is a reasonable option. The most likely outcome, no matter how you give birth to your baby, is that you and your baby will have a good outcome. Mm. That is, that's the truth of birth. And, um, you know, there isn't a right or wrong way. And so I want people to be just as comfortable to choose a cesarean section as they are, but I want it to be just as easy for them to choose a vaginal breech birth. Do you see? That's what I want. I think that that all comes kind of comes back to that true definition of informed decision making. And one of mm-hmm. the things that we see is we we say yes, we have informed consent, but we don't. What we have is possibly biased information kind of going out. We don't have true informed consent because it isn't. It's not a shared consent. It's like we give all the information and then we support the decision that they make. We don't have to d- agree with it. But if we give them all the information, we have to respect the autonomy of the woman if we want true women-centred care. That's absolutely true, Liz. And so often with breach, when you say, okay, you've gone through all the risks and benefits, what, what exactly are the benefits of being born vaginally? Do you know? And a lot of people, it's just a blank. What it, and, you know, it's really important. So I try to start out with the benefits of each mode of birth first and then we can talk about the the risks because obviously the benefits of being born vaginally is that um, there's a moderate um, risk reduction for the woman in this birth but quite a significant one if she plans to go on to have more babies from attempting a vaginal birth and there's a reduction in risk for all future babies as well. And um, obviously the best information that we have, the best evidence that we have about the um, metabolic disorders, which there are increased amounts of when someone has an elective section, actually comes from the term breach trial. The only statistically significant difference between the, um, the babies of the women who planned a cesarean section and those who planned a vaginal birth in the term breach trial at two years of age, because remember that was the result that everybody kind of pushed under the rug is that there was no statistically dip, statistically significant difference in the primary outcome with which was death or um, delay at two years. But the difference was the 6% increase in those minor metabolic disorders, which come um, frequently from cesarean sections and because the only reason they were having a cesarean section was breach presentation the term breach trial actually is one of our best sources of evidence about that Mm. there's been some interesting research that's come out the last couple of years looking at um, major databases and looking Mm. at information that both supports but also contradicts that so it's always interesting when you're looking at all that evidence and, and breaking it down what are they are you actually comparing apples with apples or are you comparing apples and oranges and therefore looking at the differences of it? Because um, also with the, the cesarean birth, um, there's also that potential for decreasing in gut biome. So that yeah. is looking at, once again, long-term cesarean kind of birth and, and increased obesity with children coming from that, um, which wouldn't, you wouldn't think that would be the same with breach because you're still coming through the vaginal outlet. So you're still getting that, vaginal bacterial seeding oh no the 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 increase was with the uh, the planned cesarean section so it was the cesarean sections yeah so yeah um and because a lot of people say there was you know no difference at two years but actually there was one statistically significant difference and it was that the increase in metabolic disorders Mm. from the the children who where cesarean section was planned 
Um, but yeah, at, but it's interesting you say that because I think one of the things you had asked me about what I would say to future generations is that um, research is like an enormous jigsaw puzzle. You only ever get one tiny little piece of the puzzle at a time. So I would say you have to have a picture of what the wider plan is and then pick off one piece at a time and don't try to make your study too big because sometimes just these little bits of the puzzle are really, really important. You know, so um, like in our video study, obviously we determined that among good outcomes, the interval was actually really short. And of course, the immediate objection was, yes, but you didn't look at any bad outcomes. And obstetricians especially are really interested in, you know, the adverse outcomes. And what if they're just as short? And uh, Or, you know, okay, well, now we've just completed, another master's student has just completed a case control study where she um, used that information, that little tiny piece of the puzzle, as a hypothesis to say that babies who were admitted to the NICU or died around the time of birth um, were more likely to have an interval of over three minutes from the pelvis to the head. And indeed, that proved true. Um, and there were other things that she looked upon, but what looked at. But what was really interesting also is that not only was that true, but the time to the first intervention was longer among the cases as well. So it wasn't just a case that they were always going to be difficult, these terrible head entrapments that we have no way of predicting or preventing. Actually, our hypothesis continues to be true that the longer you delay in intervening, if it's not going very quickly, um, the more tone the baby loses and the more difficult the ultimate required intervention becomes. And, and I'm just thinking of it from my, one of my interests is professional communication um, and thinking that acknowledgement of this is where we're at, this is what the time is, as you said before, we know yeah. that I'm calling the time now, we're on a countdown clock, that that communication with the team and them understanding that that's what that situation is, is so critical, which is where oh, yeah. the importance of that that IP training, IPE training um, yeah. is, but also the fact that it's so easy to forget the woman and their family that's there at the time. So that, that antenatal education that you've been talking about is even more important so they know what's happening as well, which yeah. if they're part of it and they know what's happening, decreases birth trauma and that emotional yeah. birth trauma that happens. Exactly. And that's exactly what we've found, Liz, in our practice as well is that I, you know, a lot of people, for example, professionals can be quite traumatized if someone, for example, has had a GA section. So not that long ago, there was a woman who um, had an extreme bradycardia. Unfortunately, we were already into second stage, but it wasn't coming out immediately. So we just had to go and it was a GA section. 
And um, one of the midwives said, is that really better than an elective cesarean section? Because she would imagine that the woman would be very traumatized. But actually, she's come into this knowing she has a 40% chance of emergency cesarean section. She has chosen that. And it's actually a lot less traumatic than the low-risk woman who comes in expecting that she's going to have a water birth and then has the cord prolapse and ends up with the same thing. That could be hugely traumatic. Whereas the woman who knows that, you know, there's not a terribly bad chance that that's going to happen. Um, and I have a picture of um, someone who's had a cesarean section and it was in second stage. Um, it was actually, sadly, after an episiotomy. But when I gave the episiotomy, I said, I, I think there's only a 50% chance that this is what's going to do it. You know, I can't guarantee that it's going to come. She said, I want you to try. We tried. It didn't come. We went to emergency section. And she, I have this wonderful picture where she's holding her baby skin to skin, smiling up like she's on the beach or something. You know, <laughs> she was so, she felt so good that she was able to do what she wanted to do. And she since has referred so many women for care. She's the greatest advocate for the service. Um, And it was because she was involved in every single step of the way. And it was only because I do research and I look really closely at how and when these things are going to happen that I was able to inform her so clearly, this is when I would do it. This is this is when, why we might do these, all these things. And she still felt great about, I mean, and you think, like, I think who can feel great about ending up with an episiotomy and a cesarean section, but actually she feels pretty good because she got to have her labor. Her baby was in good condition. She knew what was involved and she chose that for herself and she took responsibility for it. So and I, I mean, women are so strong and they continually amaze me and at how good psychologically the results can be through that good communication like you described. It's so important. And you can have many events that technically meet the definition of traumatic that women don't necessarily experience as traumatic if they have been involved. Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the keys trying to get through is that that antenatal education and that true informed education is a way of, and I'm not saying managing expectations in a bad way, but for women to actually have, okay, so, yep, we're going to go for this. This is my birth plan. I want it to go this way. I want it to go natural. But also going, yep, we're going to try that. But if this doesn't happen, then here's option one, here's option two, here's option three. So the first time they're not hearing it is actually when it's happening. And so they can go, okay, so you know how we talked about option two? We're going to be coming up to that if this next try doesn't work. Do you remember that? Yep. Okay, give it another go. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's something that we need to promote more and part of your courses in giving the skills for bridge birth, I think, are are critical to that. Yeah, and I think also that reminds me of another thing. So the things that... The things that I want to achieve with my research is breaking down some of those hierarchies. So I'm a midwife who does research in a controversial area that's traditionally led, or as some would say, controlled by obstetricians. But I want to um, help break down some false and unhelpful hierarchies um, because midwives are experts in physiological birth. They're experts in optimizing that process and 
experts in spotting when it's deviated into an area of higher risk, let's say. Um, but while not all midwives might be expert in vaginal breech birth, midwife specialists bring that unique midwifery insight into the practice. And that's what's changing the way breech births are managed. Um, and also they bring, they bring, for example, different ways of working. So midwives are more likely to caseload. Mm. So I can be sure that the women that I'm attending have the information I need them to have about interventions I might need to perform because I've counseled them. They know me or someone who counseled very similarly to me has counseled them. So, um, and that is a midwifery insight. And I think there's a lot of problems in, um, in, services where people are counseled very differently by different people they're counseled by people who have no experience with breech birth and a lot of fear and and that's just not serving the purpose so so i think midwifery midwifery insight can really change breech birth and make it safer and if you can change breech birth what area of physiological birth can't you change right because yeah and i think that's Potentially one of the biggest challenges is, and it's the same, I look at it the same view as continuity of care. We know midwifery-led continuity of care is some of the best practice that we can give, but it's not possible in all models of care. So our challenge is how do we bring those elements into those other models of care so we still reach that standard? So that's the same thing is how do you bring that education of caseload management where you know that they're going to get that education how do you bring that into the other services how do you upskill everybody else so you're going to give yourself a definitely kind of keep yourself in a in a position of research and education for the rest of your career yeah i i don't see myself exhausting this (laughs) until i you know i think when i'm ready to retire there will still be many many questions i would have liked to have answered so i mean that's i think Professor Chris McCourt, who I used to work with at City University, where I did my um, doctorate, she said that there are different types of researchers, and some are methodologists, um, where you're very interested in in, an expert in a certain methodology, and I can't forget what the second, I can't remember what the second type is, but the third type is midwives who are very interested in one area of practice and become an expert in that, and that's definitely me and it's definitely the model of clinical academic where you develop a specialist practice and research that area um and if you're going down that route you want to pick something that is going to be endlessly fascinating to you um because you're going to be speaking about it talking to people about it and you're going to be called upon as an expert for you know the rest of your career so it has to be something that's but there's so many of those topics out there you know um some of the work being done by by, um, in Australia with like Holly Prittis and the perineal outcomes. You know, there's lots of areas where midwives are making huge strides into um, different areas of specialist practice, and it's really exciting. That's why I keep telling all the, the students that are looking for PhDs. It's like pick something that you adore because it's going to become a part of your life and you're going to become the expert. Oh, yeah. Um, so I want to take your – so I, I'm very aware that you're on a very limited time. Um, take your mind back to when you were doing your PhD. Yeah. What were the things that kind of kept you going on those really dark days? 
what were the things that helped you kind of when you sat there kind of thinking about or possibly even rocking in the corner because we know that the toll that it takes on on mental health for students what were the things that you did that helped you get you through those dark days to continue to the end of it and be successful I'm gen- I'm generally a morning person. So I like to get up, have some coffee. I work pretty hard from about 7 to 12. Um, and sometimes I didn't didn't make myself push into the afternoon. It's because you know thinking is hard and sometimes you just need downtime to let things percolate. So I often would work quite hard from 7 to 12, have a break for lunch. I'm a huge fan of naps. Um, my colleagues know that I, if, if it's possible to have a nap in the middle of the day, I usually do it and I wake up feeling a lot better for it. And then I try to get some exercise. Um, obviously, um, I walk that yappy dog that you hear occasionally. <laughs> and, um, but by five o'clock, I'm not very much used to anyone in the evenings in terms of hardcore intellectual work. Some people work until two o'clock in the morning. I'm definitely a lark. But I am usually winding down in the evening. I like to knit, sew, chat to one of my sons or listen to an audiobook, Netflix. But I try to have some downtime and try not, even though it's hard to go to bed when you feel like you have 50 emails to answer, yep. I try not to spend my evening doing that. I think that that separation of work, study and rest time is underestimated with a lot of people because they feel that they have to be working and writing all the time and that as you said that downtime allows that stuff to percolate in the back of your brain and so many people I've spoken to both for the podcast and also outside have said it's been while walking that they've had a a breakthrough so they use the recorder on their phone to kind of like remember something and talk to themselves so they can still do it but then put it away or during the shower that they'll kind of like have this kind of brain. So I think most of us have had brainwaves in the shower because our, body, our mind's doing something else and the neurons just happen to connect up in the, yeah. in the right pathways to kind of fire and a off. change of scenery, I think. Like um, it's, I can't imagine how hard it is for people in COVID because I think I spent so much of my PhD writing in various different cafes Um, and there was one guy who works at a bookstore in Norwich who was um, doing work on his computers and we kept laughing because we were always like passing each other we had similar kind of cafe rotations (laughs) um, where we would all kind of we'd kind of find our station and you get to know the other people who are on cafe rotations and um, yeah so it's a change of scenery um, and just working in a different place and trying to put yourself in a nice environment while you're doing some of the work and not kind of self-flagellation type of workhorse mentality. It's, it's, it is important to balance and have a life as well. Yeah. I think for some people on the COVID, the most of change of scenery they're getting is if they change the picture on their desktop on their computer. Oh, it's terrible, um, isn't it? It's hard to imagine. It's it's going to be interesting to see what toll it takes, not only on postgraduate students, but also on birthing in the future. When we think of so many women who were have been forced and still are in some countries to only have one person or not even have a support person or to have a support person, but then after maybe two hours after the birth, that person has to go and they can only have visitors for a limited amount of time. 
that all their antenatal appointments were online. And so you yeah. sit there and think for the first time going through that birth, how is that going to affect their second births and, and subsequent we, births? We've definitely seen that affect care in the breach clinic because, um, you know, when a woman is deciding to have whether or not to have an external conversion, we could have, you know, a 45-minute meeting then she goes home and talks to her partner who hasn't heard any of the evidence or, the, or met us and comes in and says, actually, my partner's not comfortable and yeah. I don't want to try that. I'm just going to have a cesarean section. And you can kind of understand, but it's just very sad. On the other hand, um, like I said, I am counseling some people this evening via Zoom and maybe some of the potential we can... Um, retain even like like for example I could easily spend 45 minutes just writing up the content of counseling but when I was making this appointment I thought hmm I wonder if there's a way I can just record this appointment and if anyone needs to know what I said well there it is (laughs) do you know what I mean that maybe we can harness some of the technology to save us some time and it's certainly a lot easier for me to meet with them via Zoom than coming in specifically to the hospital, which is impossible at the moment. So I, I really hope, I think you're absolutely right. And I can't imagine people who had babies in April 2020 and had to spend this whole year, again, I don't know how I would have survived babyhood without cafes. So yeah, it's unimaginable. But I hope that when we get to the other side, we can preserve some of the good things and the new tools that we've all become comfortable with while recognizing how much we've suffered from a lack of human contact and how important that is. Yeah. Yeah, transcription services from recordings, I think, and from telehealth appointments could be one of the bonuses that comes out of this because if we do have that recording and we can do transcriptions and especially with some of the AI transcriptions that we're having come through, that it does give both the verbal but also you then get a transcribed kind of like of what's being said so you can read it afterwards because the information overload for some people is too much for one appointment and then they can go back and look at their options. So lots more research possible in the future. Amazing, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So as I said, I said I'm very aware of your times and we're coming up to time. Thank you so much for giving me this time and for talking with me. Thank you so much for what you're doing, Liz. I'm really glad that you're trying to improve the profile of research because it's so important for more midwives to get involved. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us today. You'll find all the links on Twitter, Instagram, and on the podcast website. If you are a midwife and you would like to share your research, your postgraduate studies, or even the quality improvement projects you are doing now, then email me at throughthepinard at gmail.com. Send me a tweet or send me a DM.